talk about my, my birth. It's a unique experience. I'm kidding. Do all of you have one of these little um, wafer and juice for communion? Okay. It'll become important at the end. Okay. Today is the second in our series, which is about the four elements of the church. And John spoke last week about um, largely about fellowship. And today I'm going to speak about what we call communion. In some churches, they call it the Eucharist. So here are the four elements of the church, the foundational text that John used. They devoted themselves, this is out of the book of Acts, chapter 2, 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to, firstly, the apostles' teaching, to secondly, to fellowship, to thirdly, the breaking of bread, which is also fellowship, and to prayer. So this week we're going to look at the breaking of bread, which is another way of saying communion. And here's the description of the early life of the church in those early days. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. So they had home meetings, just like we have home meetings. And they ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising and enjoying the favor of all of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. As John spoke last week about this habit of breaking bread, you remember he told us, and we've, we've heard this many times, that eating together was an act of love. It was an act of connection. Still in the Middle East, uh, eating together is one of the most significant things that you can do with someone else. So this all started 2,000 years ago. Actually, it started even before the early church. Eating together was a celebration of connectedness and community. Now, I want you to, to, to understand something. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Everyone was together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions, giving to anyone who had need. They ate together, etc., etc. There's an order to what's happened here, and the order is really important. The order is that God poured out His Holy Spirit, and then these other things resulted. Are you with me? The other things didn't come because they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. It didn't come because of the quality of their fellowship. It didn't come because they broke bread together. And it didn't come because they were simply praying. All these other things, those four things, came about because the Holy Spirit was poured out by God. In other words, they didn't earn through their efforts this wonderful fellowship or the signs and wonders. All of that came about because God initiated Himself, pouring Himself out onto them. Does that make sense? It's going to make sense in a minute when we consider one of the amazing things that happened, and this is a side point, this isn't my main point, but one of the most powerful things that happened in this community was 
this, this uh, communalism where they were selling their property and they were taking the money that came from that and they were giving it to the poor and giving it to one another so that nobody had any needs. That is a flat-out miracle. Something so powerful that it overcomes our own instinct for survival. It, it overcomes our own instinct for financial security. It overcomes our own instinct of greed. Something God did was powerful enough to cause these people to share in this way. Now, this is absolutely not a political phenomena. Do you understand? This didn't come about because they embraced a political philosophy. This came about because they were touched with the love and power and presence of God, and it so changed them that they found themselves giving to one another. It was entirely voluntary. It required no government. It required no hierarchy to force them to do this. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm getting a little bit political here. But I want you to get it. Oftentimes this passage in the Bible is used to found a political philosophy. It's not there to found a political philosophy. It's there to describe something God did which overcomes political philosophy. Do you understand? It was never the result of threat or coercion. And I just want to finish this point by saying this. It was clear from Peter's comments to Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira were two, were a husband and wife that sold their property, uh, sort, of, sort of like everyone else is doing it, so I guess we should do it too. So they sold their property and, and they came and they told uh, Peter, well, here's, here's the money we received from the field. And he rebuked them for lying to the Holy Spirit and the, to the church when they said that this is the entire proceeds of, of what we sold the property for. But it wasn't. They held some back. The problem here for them wasn't that they held some back. The problem was here, lying. This was the problem. Lying to God and lying to his people. This is very, very clear from Peter's comments when he says this. Well, didn't it belong to you before you sold it? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you th think of doing such a thing? You, you didn't just lie to humans. You lied to God. And as a result of that lie, they were struck down one after the other, dead. They weren't judged because they held some money back. They were judged because they lied about it. Do you understand? The whole point is that the amazing things they didn't experience came about because the infant church was birthed in power and love. It was birthed in supernatural power and supernatural love. And it is that power and that love that compelled them to do every single thing that they did. It's God's design. Touch us with His love and power so that we live supernaturally powerful lives of love. And it's his plan and design that where this love and power shows itself most clearly is in our fellowship. It really does come down to how we live together. It comes down to how we treat each other. 
It comes down to how we recognize that when we come together as the body of Christ, we are the body of Christ. We're the expression of Jesus on earth. Not in, our, not in how wonderful we are as individuals, but how wonderful our fellowship is. Jesus said, you'll know, they'll know that you're Christians by your wonderful humanness in yourself, by how incredible models you are of, of little bitty Jesus. No, he said, they'll know you're Christians by your love for one another. So it's always the fellowship that matters most. How we live together is the truth about God. And if we don't live together well, we don't exemplify the truth about God. But this is how it was for the infant church. Man, they really lived it. They really had the power and they really had the love. That's what God intended in the beginning for His little baby, church. That's what He intends 2,000 years later for us. So in the beginning, they had this incredible fellowship. Honoring, loving, giving to one another, putting others ahead of their own interests. They exemplified Jesus. They were full of power and they had spiritual authority because of that. When they spoke, people listened because their lives were a living example of what love's lo love looks like in a community. Now let's flash forward 55 years. We've just got to picture what it looked like in the very beginning with this little baby church. Now let's go forward 55 years. Is 55 years a long time? No. When you're old, 55 years seems like it went by like that. It seems, it seems like a long time to you, Josh, because you still have the fruit of youth within you. But some of us are dried up, withered old prunes. And we know what it is to be beyond 55. Amen. We're living beyond the speed limit. 55 years later, the Apostle Paul is busy being an apostle, and he's planted churches. And one of the churches he's planted is in the city of Corinth. Now look, the Corinthian church was birthed into the same power that the baby church in Jerusalem was birthed into. Now how do we know this? Because Paul says so. What did he say? 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5. My message... And my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, no, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Right? That, that word has not changed 2,000 years later. Our faith still must rest on God's power. Elsewise, it's nothing but theoretical stuff. I've said this a thousand times. Based on theoretical stuff, someone can talk you into becoming a Christian. But someone else can come along a few years later and talk you out of it. If it's just based on ideas. But when it's based on an experience, which Shane was talking about in worship, we need an experience of God. When it's based on an experience of the power of God in your life, you can't be talked out of an experience. It happened. I know it happened. It's real. It's true. 
Mark, how do, how do you know your faith is real? Because I have conversations with God and stuff he says turns out to happen. Beyond coincidence. We passed, we passed the point of no coincidence a long, long time ago. Our faith is real because we experience him, because we have relationship with him. But the quality of that relationship with him is demonstrated by the quality of the relationships we have with the other brothers and sisters. So the Corinthian church, 55 years later, was born in exactly the same power as the baby church in Jerusalem, but it was lacking something. What was it lacking? That the baby church in Jerusalem had, and this one 55 years later does not have. Come on. Was lacking in the love for one another. How do we know that? Because Paul rebukes the blankety blank out of them. No, he's upset. See, they had power without love. Do you know it's possible to have power without love? Do you know that there's a whole lot of Christians pursuing power instead of love? Love's nice, but the power's what it's all about. Let's just get more of the power. As if they think that by getting more of the power, it's going to bring the love. Let me tell you what. More power doesn't bring more love. More love brings more power. They had the power, but not the love. Here's Paul's description of the state of the powerful, I mean, they were, they were prophesying, they were speaking in tongues, they were doing the whole nine yards, their meetings were full of a demonstration of power, but he said this about them, you are still worldly. For since, now look, look at the relational problem here, the evidence, where, the evidence of good or bad is in the relationships. For since there is jealousy, and since there is quarreling, are you not worldly? You're acting like mere humans. And then he talks about the Lord's Supper. Then he talks about communion. Then he talks about this, you know what they used to call it back then? The love feast. Very apparently it wasn't a love feast. It was a selfishness feast. Me first. Everybody else second. And this is what he said about when they do this thing together. So then... When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you're eating. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Do you so despise? Do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Not in this matter. You see what's happening? They got the power, but they don't have the community and they don't have the love. And when they come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, when did the Lord's Supper take place? The night before he died. Isn't that interesting? We're celebrating the night before he died an excruciating death so that we could love one another with the love that comes only from God. So that we could be exemplars of his love. 
and it's turned into this? This exercise in selfishness? And this is supposed to be remembering Jesus? Death on the cross? This is disgusting. It only took, see, the title of my message here is From Real to Ritual. From what is real to what is nothing but a ritual. It took 50, it only 50, look at some of the people that were there, the young people that were there when Jesus was alive just before his death, they're still here now. They're still here 55 years later. Not even one generation has passed. And this thing has gone from something profound and amazing and godly into something that is nothing but a celebration of selfishness. And now it's just a ritual. It went from something that's real and now it's just a religious ritual. One generation. And listen to Paul's correction. And it's severe. He's going to clean this mess up. Everyone, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning, the word discerning there means to recognize. You eat and drink without recognizing the body of Christ, recognizing the community that you're in, you see. Recognizing those relationships. Putting them ahead of yourself. For those who eat and drink without recognizing the body of Christ, they eat and drink judgment on themselves. And then he says, that is why so many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, which is a very polite way saying died. Means died. So, why, so that's why so many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have died. Does that give us some sense of how important the quality of our love is for one another to God? What we need to understand here is that the result of not recognizing the fact of the body of Christ in one another. We're celebrating that with the bread and the wine. And we always think it's a symbol of Christ's body and blood, and it is. But the thing they weren't recognizing is the body of Christ in one another. They weren't recognizing their relationships. They weren't recognizing their community of connectedness. That's the body of Christ. When we celebrate communion, we're not just celebrating Jesus. We're celebrating Jesus amongst us. Jesus within us. Jesus in our relationships. The one thing, no matter what background you come from, no matter what race you're from, no matter what, what country you're from, no matter what language you speak, we all have one thing in common. It's the only thing we have in common, really, and that's Jesus. He connects us all together. So when we're celebrating Him in communion, we're not just celebrating Him, we're celebrating Him in our relationships with each other. And they failed to value those relationships and it had dire consequences. Some of them are sick 
and weak and others have actually died. And this tells us something extremely important. A lack of love will lead to a lack of power. You see, the healing gift was waning amongst them because the love had disappeared from their celebration together. Do you understand? Love does not follow power. Power follows love. Keep the main thing the main thing and you'll have everything else. Lose the main thing and you'll lose everything else. Pentecost was a supernatural outpouring of power, but it was a supernatural expression of love and genuine Christian fellowship. And within 55 years, it had deteriorated into a love of spiritual power without a love for one another. They sought the gifts, but they failed to love. Ritual. Why did this happen? I'm always fascinated not just that what happened, but why did it happen? What can cause something real to deteriorate to something that is simply ritual in 55 years in one generation? What's the driving force behind that? Pride is one of the main... Well, you know, you know the root of all sin is pride. The root of all sin is pride. It's a certain kind of self-centeredness. Look at me, me first, you second. So that's one of them for sure. Here's another. Human nature. Human nature. Here's the crazy thing about human nature. It's our human nature to reduce the spiritual and the supernatural to the level of the natural. Do you know we're always trying to find a natural explanation for God's work? Well, that was a coincidence. Well, that was psychological. Well, that was, that was this, that was that. <laughs> you, know what we, you know what we can't stand as humans? Anything we can't explain. See, when you can explain something, I, I remember um, for some of you, you're still children, you're babies. You weren't even alive then. There was this time called the 1980s. It, it was a dark age. In the 1980s, we had, we had the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. People were dying. We didn't know why. There was this national fear going all over, well, through the nation and throughout the world. What's causing this? And uh, we all felt incredibly out of control. To be out of control as a human is to be in a state of fear. We crave control. So we were living in this terrible panic. And then a French virologist discovered the HIV virus. And he said, okay, here's the cause of AIDS. Everybody relaxed. Oh, now we know why. Do you know they never found the cure? The same number of people were still dying all over the world. But we all relaxed. Why? We could explain it. We felt in control because we could explain it. We weren't in control. It was just as bad as it always was. But we felt better because now we can explain it. 
It's human nature to take the supernatural expression of God and turn it into something that we feel we can control because we can explain it. As time goes on after a supernatural experience, we tend to lose sight of the supernatural nature of the experience. We reduce it to something easy to understand and categorize. Our nature craves an explanation, which our human nature can explain naturally, as well as our human nature to chase power rather than love. And this is because it serves our pride. Who doesn't want to be powerful? Who doesn't despise weakness in ourselves and in others? The second answer, maybe it's the third answer. I think we've got human nature, but that's wound up in pride, so it's really one answer. Here's the second answer. It's the power of an ungodly culture. Guys, Corinth was a very, very degenerate place. In Paul's day, Corinth had approximately 250,000 citizens. How do you guys feel about slavery? Good or bad? Bad. Had 250,000 citizens. How many slaves did it have? Hmm? 400,000. 250,000 citizens, 400,000 slaves. It was an extremely wealthy city. It was a religious city in the wrong sense of the word. It had 12 temples, some of which practiced religious temple prostitution. In the temple of Aphrodite, at one time, her temple had 1,000 temple prostitutes. You go to church to have sex with a stranger. And you call this godly. The immorality of Corinth was so well known that the Greeks came up with the word, a verb, to Corinthianize. It was a verb. To Corinthianize, it meant to practice sexual immorality. And here's the sad fact. This is how it works. Under the influence of this degenerate culture, the church was dragged away from Jesus and the centrality of love. All the problems Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians, and there's a bunch of them, they were all imported from the Corinthian culture. Phew! Thank God we're not influenced by our culture. Wow, we're not being dragged into anything disgusting, are we? Every waking minute of every day, you are being bombarded with an anti-Christ message. You are being bombarded with values which are now taken as normal, which are absolutely degenerate and ungodly. And that influence is not going to stop. It will get worse and worse and worse. And don't think that we're immune to that message because we're not. 
God designed us to be people who influence one another and are influenced by one another. That's what it is to be in a community. That's why our community is so vitally important because it creates herd immunity. Amen. Do you understand? There's a virus out there. It's a degenerate moral decay and it is out to get us and you can immunize yourself safely without side effects by staying close to your brothers and sisters. By simply being in community and reminding us of the truths we hold in common and the wonder of what we have in Jesus and how incredible it is to be the family of God. Just to remind ourselves of these simple things over and over is to create herd immunity. But outside of the herd, you are not safe. You don't have herd immunity if you're not in contact with the herd. Herd immunity is not theoretical. Herd immunity is what happens when you maintain a high regard for your fellowship in Jesus with one another. And you keep Him as central to your relationships and you keep your relationships highly important. The relationships you have with your brothers and sisters are the expression of your, the relationship you have with God. He that says he loves God but does not love his brothers and sisters has deceived himself. He is living in darkness. How do I know I love God? Because I love you. And if I'm not loving you very well, let me know it. Because I need to clean it up so I can start loving God properly. Our faith is not personal. It isn't just my vertical relationship with Jesus. It's my relationship with one another is the expression of my vertical relationship. My horizontal relationship is the proof in the pudding. Sorry, guys, but I'm passionate about this. If we don't do this well, and we don't get this well, we will be sucked away from God, and we will be turned into nothing. And it's going to get harder. It's not going to get easier. Because the influences in the world are fundamental. We are living in a post-Christian country. It's right on the edge. We saw Europe go. Now we're on the same track. All the same philosophies, all the same isms are functioning, only they're much worse than they were even in Europe 10, 20, 30 years ago. It's time to get very focused on maintaining our fellowship and highly valuing our love for one another, making it central because the power follows the love. The love doesn't follow the power. I'm going to rebuke us a little bit. I'm sharing in this rebuke. We get together and we pray before the service and honestly, most of our prayer is that we would be a community of power. I want that more than anything, you guys. I want to see physical healings like we've never seen before. So many people we love are suffering, dying. I want that. But we should spend as much time asking God to help us to love one another as we spend asking for power. Because when you have power without love, you have Corinth. And who needs that? No, we, we, we need the power and the love, but we need the love first because that's the proof of his existence in us. So Paul really tears a strip off of him. But he needed to. Corinth was living in a very degenerate culture. It was a very degenerate culture. 
So what was Paul's restorative advice? What did he say to them? Here's what he said to them. And here's what he's saying to us. Follow the way of love. Number one, first priority. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. Why so much prophecy? Because it's designed to edify and and build up one another. It is a relational gift. There's only one spiritual gift that's selfish. Which is it? There's only one design for the self. What is it? Come on. Paul said it, when you speak in, you edify yourself. Do you know that the one spiritual gift in the body of Christ that's caused the most division and trouble is the gift of tongues because it's the only selfish one? Hello? Right? Do you ever think about that? And prophecy is utterly unselfish. What can I speak to Mark that will encourage him in his life this week? What's the message God wants to bring to Kenya that will encourage her life this week? God, please help me to hear for someone else because they may not be hearing for themselves right now. Maybe I can hear for them and help them. Eagerly desire, follow the way of love. Eagerly desire the gift of prophecy. But all, desire all of them, but desire the ones that build somebody else up the most. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move a mountain, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, give over my body to hardships so that I can boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Nothing. If we seek love, power will follow. If we seek power, you may get it without love and you are nothing. We live in a place in an age not much different than Corinth. We're being influenced by our culture 24-7 and we need to hear Paul's correction just as much as they needed to hear Paul's correction. Okay? Now, do you feel properly rebuked? Because if you didn't, I can keep going. (laughs) All right, here's the application for today. And this came to me, and I think it's the Lord. It's such a beautiful idea. I think it's Him. You know, most of the time when we celebrate communion, it's very much the vertical. And it, it should be. I mean, we're remembering Him, and we're remembering what He did for us, and we're personalizing the gift of the cross into our own lives. We're taking and eating of him. But there's a horizontal element to this. We're not just doing it alone as a personal thing. We're to discern and recognize in the love feast the body of Christ in one another, that we are the body of Christ. We should be able to celebrate our horizontal relationships as much as we're celebrating our vertical relationship. 
But we don't do that very often with communion. We continue to personalize it only. But today we're not going to personalize it only. We're going to do both. And here's how we'll do it. And this hopefully will be a spirit-led thing and not a ritual. But we have the bread and we have the juice. Everyone has that, I hope. If you don't, please go back and get it. Here's what we're going to do that's different. I want you to look around the room and I want you to find somebody to do communion with. Guys with guys, girls with girls. Okay? I want you to look, like stand up. Please stand up. And for those that are watching at home, if you've got someone at home to do this with, maybe go get some bread and some wine or some bread and some juice. And we can do this together. Now I want you to look around. Just start. Let your gaze wander across the room. And your gaze is going to stop on somebody. And you're going to click and say, that's the person I want to do communion with. Okay? So start looking around. Find somebody that you're going to do communion with. Okay, everybody's got somebody? Got somebody? Everybody's got somebody? Okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to have the other person start with one. Have the other person open their communion package and take out the wafer. And when they're holding the wafer, I want you to say to them, this is the body of Jesus that was broken for you. When you take this, you receive what you need from him. He's your daily bread. You're receiving what you need from him. I want you to to invite them to take it. And then I want you to just quietly wait on the Lord and say to the Lord, what do you want me to say to this person by way of encouragement? What do you want me to say to this, this person to express your love for them right now? And just what it might be just God bless you or, you know, anything. It's, it's not, this isn't a time to make up a great prayer. This is just a time to speak what God is giving you for them that they maybe want to hear or need to hear today that's encouraging. And then when they finish that, take the juice and say, this is the blood of Jesus that was poured out for you so that you can have a relationship with him and you can receive what you need from him. Something like that. And then have them do that. And then it's your turn to receive and they're going to do it to you. And we're going to celebrate what Paul calls the priesthood of all believers, that we all get to do this for one another and be this for one another in this moment. We're going to celebrate that by doing it that way. Are you ready? In the words of the great prophet, ready, set, go. Do you have one of these? I'll do it with you.
For those of you that are still praying, you may continue to do so. It's wonderful to hear laughter. It's wonderful to hear you guys talking and communing. That's good. So uh, what we're going to do is if you are wanting uh, more prayer and you need healing in your body, I want to invite the prayer teams down front. Um, we want to pray with you. We believe in miracles because we believe in Jesus. So come on down to the front. Get prophesied over. Get prayed over. Receive your healing. Receive the fire of God. So I'll, I'll stay down here and pray with you. But if the prayer teams would come down, if they're not praying already, it would be awesome. Let's go after it. Thanks for watching. If you're watching online, make sure to like and share so that we can know everybody that we're here. And we'll see you next week.